If you have a Bible, I'm going to look at Daniel tonight. Daniel chapter 4. We'll pray. Father, we ask you, Lord, that you'll speak to us. And I just ask you'll show us clearly, Lord, that you are in control of all events and all men and all things that take place, Lord. We thank you that we can trust you for that and that you also, Lord, know how to deal with pride. And I thank you for that revelation that you'll give us tonight in Jesus' name. So, you know, Daniel 4, before we look at it, it's the famous account of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. He gets lifted up in pride and God has to abase him for seven years. And the way he does that is he ends up eating grass with oxen. And I mean, that's kind of a humbling thing, I would say. The greatest king probably, arguably, you could say he's probably one of the greatest king that, that has ever lived. And he became a literal beast, so to speak, for a period of time, grazing in the fields, it says. There's a lot of people who are like, that sounds pretty crazy. I think everyone in here believes the Bible, but I mean, that does sound pretty crazy. But actually, there are cases of that. It's pretty rare, but it's called boanthropy. Bow for bovine anthropy, a man, a man that thinks he is an ox. If I hadn't read this, that this guy said this, <laughs> I would have wondered. But there was a famous Old Testament scholar back in the 40s. His name was R.K. Harrison. I've got several of his books. He's one of those dry guys that, you know, gives you all the details of the background of Old Testament cases. But he said he was in a British mental institution in 1946, and he actually saw a young man who was physically fit. There was nothing wrong with him in his 20s, but he was antisocial, decidedly antisocial, he said. But he spent whole days from dawn until dusk on the institutional grounds, and he couldn't take care of himself very well. He had other people that had to bathe him and had to shave him, and they gave him water from a clean container so that he wouldn't drink from mud puddles. That's what they had to do. But he wandered over the grounds and he would pick up chunks of grass and eat them. And he wouldn't eat with anybody else. That's what he would eat was grass. They actually saw with his own eyes. So I'm not saying there's a connection, but for those of you that watch college football, Les Miles of LSU, he was always eating grass. I'm not saying it's the same thing there, but but I would say this, though. You think about it. If God was really wanting to humble any man, and especially a king, can you think of a better way of humbling them than the picture we have here in Daniel 4? A king crawling around on all fours, eating grass with the beasts of the field, and he wasn't sleeping in his ivory bed. He wasn't sleeping in his sleep number adjusted to number 42. I don't know if that's where you'd put it or not. No. It says he's sleeping out under the stars of heaven and dew would be on him when he'd wake up. They said his hair became matted. It looked like feathers. It looked like eagle's feathers. And they said his fingernails. I've, you ever seen people with long fingernails? I mean, that is nasty looking. And that's the way he was. Became an animal. So there's two themes we're going to look at here it dealt with in Daniel 4. And the first of them is, is that God is in control of all men. And we're looking at a king he's in control, but he's in control of all men at all times, in all ways, in all situations. That's the way he is. And the other thing, like I said, he will humble pride is the second thing. And both of those we have dealt with in this one event. If you would, you're in Daniel 4. The first point that... God is in control of all men. We'll come back and read this later. But look in verse 17. Look what it says in Daniel 4, 17. It says, This matter is by the decree of the watchers and the demand by the word of the holy ones to the intent that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomsoever he will 
and sets up over it the basest of men. And the second point that he will humble pride is found at the very last verse of chapter 4. Verse 37, it says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven and all whose works are truth and his ways judgment. And look what it says at the very end. And those that walk in pride, he is able to abase. If you go back to the beginning of chapter 4, chapter begins by Nebuchadnezzar. He's really given a worldwide press release. That's what he's doing here in verse 1. So he ruled over a vast empire, one of the greatest empires ever. Went from the Persian Gulf all the way down to Egypt. If you can picture a modern map, I don't know how many of you are familiar with the world over in the Middle East, but that would be all the way from Western Iran, modern Iran down to Egypt, and from modern Syria into Saudi Arabia. And under that umbrella, there would have been a lot of different cultures, languages, people groups. It was huge. So news had probably spread throughout his empire that he couldn't rule because he'd gone mad. It was seven years. They don't know. It could have been seven months, seven years. It was a period of seven, more than likely. Most scholars say it was seven years. I think it was probably seven years. And the rumors would have been, this guy, he can't be on the throne anymore. He's gone crazy. And the rumors would have been spreading. What he's doing here is he's saying, I'm going to set the record straight. And he gives glory to the God of Israel in doing so, which is amazing in and of itself. So look what it says here in Daniel 4, the first three verses. He says, Nebuchadnezzar the king unto all people, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. Because he basically was ruling over the earth at the time. Peace be multiplied unto you. That was a typical, they would say that in their letters to kings. And he said, I thought it good to show the signs and wonders that the high God has wrought toward me. And how great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders, his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion is from generation to generation. Imagine a heathen king praising God. He's saying, for the signs and the wonders that he's done in me. Now, a sign means a miraculous event, and a wonder is an event with a wonderful effect. So what he's saying is, in this opening three verses here, God has done an amazing work in me. He's done a miraculous thing, and it has had wonderful effects on my life. I mean, that's a heathen king saying that. That's unbelievable, really. What he's doing here, though, is in these first three verses, he's basically giving the end from the beginning. Giving you the end from the beginning, that happens in some of the Psalms. Psalm 73 starts off that way. He praises God and all that, but he tells you then how he came down to that conclusion. And that's what we have here in chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar is saying, God has done a great and mighty work in me. Signs and wonders performed in me. And then he's going to go on and tell you how he came to that conclusion, how his life came to that point. That begins in verses 4 and 5. Look what he says. He says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, here's how it all happened. I was at rest in my house and flourishing in my palace. And I saw a dream which made me afraid. And the thoughts upon my bed and the visions of my head, it says, they troubled me. Verse 4 is telling us what? Nebuchadnezzar was kicking back and he's enjoying everything he had accomplished. So this is near the end of his reign when he's writing this. He's conquered nations. He's built some of the most magnificent structures on earth. The Hanging Gardens. He had two of the seven wonders of the world, of the ancient world. 
where Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, he's got peace and prosperity. He's basically saying, I'm living in fat city. That's where he's at at the time. The NET translates verse 4 this way, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was relaxing in my home, living luxuriously in my palace. The picture is he's got it all. There is none more powerful, none more wealthy. He lacked nothing. But he had to learn something that all of us need to learn, and that is that having it all will never satisfy you. And he did. He had everything. If you think back in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, that's exactly what Solomon said there. He said, I built houses, I planted vineyards, I had pools of water all over the place. Men servants, maid servants, I gathered silver and gold. I had an all-star band assembled with the greatest singers you could ever imagine. Better than the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir. That's what he said he had. But he said this after experiencing and working all of those things, having all of those things happen. He says, so I was great, Solomon said, and increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. And also my wisdom remained with me. And he said, whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor. Yet when I reflected on everything, so he said he kept his wisdom with him, didn't hold anything back, got anything his heart desired. But he said, when I reflected on everything I had accomplished and on all the effort that I had expended to accomplish it, I concluded this, that all these achievements and possessions are ultimately profitless. Vanity, I believe the King James says. All these achievements and possessions are ultimately profitless, like chasing the wind. There is nothing gained from them on earth. Solomon learned that, and Nebuchadnezzar learns that, and we need to learn that. So it doesn't matter what you're after, what you're striving for. And like I heard said, it's like we always think the next thing is going to be the thing that will fulfill us. And then it's the next thing. I mean, as you grow up, I can't wait until I'm 16 so I can get a driver's license. Then you can't wait till you're 18 so you can graduate from high school and whatever. And then you stepping on up. And every time you think life's just going to be so much better. Oh, I can't wait till I get married. Can't wait till this. Can't. And guess what? It, it's always the next thing, isn't it? And that's the way it is, because God, like I quoted Augustine the other day, he's put something in us that only he can fill. And all these other things will never fill it, no matter how much of them you cram in your heart. It just won't work. You would think with all the success and the fortune that Nebuchadnezzar has here that he would sleep like a baby, wouldn't you? He's got everything his heart could desire. There's nothing he couldn't have that he wanted. And he did sleep like a baby. As they say, he woke up every two hours crying. Look what it says in verse 5. So he's at rest in his house. It says he's flourishing in his palace. In verse 5, he says, And I saw a dream which did what? Made me afraid, and the thoughts upon my bed. And he says, The visions of my head, they troubled me. He's Martin Luther King. I had a dream. And what was this dream? What was this dream all about? This dream, in essence, we'll look at it here, but it was God speaking to this man. It was God's voice speaking to him. And we'll see, he'd been ignoring that for a long time. A long time. Are there people in here that God has been speaking to you about salvation, a sin you need to repent of, that your life is backslidden? Has he been speaking to you that for a long time and you've been ignoring it? Because that's what Nebuchadnezzar did. If you'll go back, we're in four. I just want to look briefly here at a things leading up to this. If you go back to chapter 1, 
And look at something interesting here. So they had brought back all of the best of the crops, so to speak, the young men. And they brought back Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And look what it says here. God is speaking to him, and he's spoken to him here indirectly, maybe even directly. But look at this. Look in chapter 1, verse 18. It says, now at the end of the days that the king had said he should bring them in. So they've trained them in the ways of Babylon, and the king's going to question them and see where they're at with all of this. And it said, then the princes of the eunuchs brought them in. They bring these four boys, these four Hebrew boys, in before Nebuchadnezzar. And look what it says in verse 19. And the king communed with them. And among all them was found none like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore stood they before the king. Verse 20, And in all matters of wisdom and understanding that the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers that were in his realm. Right now, we have in this first chapter here, God is speaking to Nebuchadnezzar through the testimony of Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, because he's realizing they are far superior to everyone else. I mean, verse 20 says they were 10 times better. And these are religious people. He's saying they're 10 times better. His astrologers and magicians, this is all based on their gods. And he's saying there's something about these men and their God that these guys are 10 times better than the crop that my God is producing. Marduk is who it would have been. 10 times better. And listen, these guys weren't shy, were they? We know that. They weren't shy about saying who had given them their wisdom and their understanding. They would speak right up. They did. These guys were not secret service Christians. And look what it says back in verse 19 at the beginning of that. And it says, and the king communed with them. Commune with them. He's trying to figure out where are you guys getting all this from? And like I said, they wouldn't have claimed credit for themselves, would they? We'll see. Daniel wouldn't. They would have given glory to God. Right now, God's speaking to him, I believe, through these young boys. He's speaking. He's seeing that something's going on here. And when you go to chapter 2, look what it says here in the first three verses. Daniel 2, verses 1 to 3, it says, In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed dreams, wherewith his, here he is again, just having sleepless nights, where his spirit was troubled and his sleep break from him. And then the king commanded to call the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans for to show the king his dreams. So they came and they stood before the king. And the king said unto them, I have dreamed a dream. My spirit was troubled to know the dream. He's troubled. I don't know if you know it, but this time he's telling, they're all like, well, we can't interpret a dream you don't tell us. And he's like, I'm not telling you the dream. You guys, if the spirit of God's in you or the spirit of the gods, then you ought to be able to tell me my dream yourselves if you guys are really for real. And guess what? None of them could, could they? And he wasn't a nice guy. He's going to kill them all because they couldn't tell him of a dream they had. But what does it say at the beginning in, in those verses that he was troubled? He's troubled at this revelation that God has given them. And that happens to a lot of kings. In other words, God is speaking to him, isn't he? We know about Herod. John the Baptist would come, and he didn't like what he said. But he would want to hear it, but it troubled him. It convicted him, didn't it? But yet he was never converted. Felix, what did it say when Paul spoke to him about righteousness, self-control, and that there is a judgment day coming? Paul's talking to him. The hand of God is on him. It's bringing Felix to the point. What does it say happened with him? 
He trembled, didn't he? Yet he wasn't converted. So Nebuchadnezzar here is the same effect. The Spirit of God's dealing with him, and he's troubled. Daniel gets brought before him. I could tell you this, I don't want to die because you're going to kill us all, and I'm part of the group here. None of the occult wise men he had could interpret his dream, but Daniel says, I can, and he does. He boldly tells Nebuchadnezzar, he says, it's the God of Israel who gives the dream, and it is only the God of Israel that can reveal the secret of the dream, its meaning. Look down in verses 26 to 28. Here's how God is beginning to deal with this man, Nebuchadnezzar, this king. Verse 26 in chapter 2, it says, The king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Art thou able to make known unto me the dream which I have seen and the interpretation thereof? And Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king has demanded cannot the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, the soothsayers, they can't do it. Show unto the king. They have no ability like that. But, he says, verse 28, There is a God in heaven that reveals secrets and makes known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what shall be in the latter days. Thy dream and the visions of thy head upon thy bed are these. They can't do it. They're not for real. Their gods aren't for real. They have no power. He says, but there is a God in heaven that can reveal these dreams. And he goes on and interprets the dream. And Nebuchadnezzar gives a response that you think, man, this guy, maybe he got saved through all this. Because look at the end of chapter 2, beginning in verse 46, verses 46 and 47. After Daniel gives him the dream, the interpretation, it says, Then the king Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face, and he worshipped Daniel, and commanded that they should offer an oblation and sweet odors unto him. And the king answered unto Daniel, and said, Of a truth it is, that your God is a God of gods, and a Lord of kings, and a revealer of secrets, seeing thou couldst reveal these secrets. But in reality, that confession he made meant nothing. It was only a temporary confession. It was foxhole faith, so to speak. He's saying all these things, but he doesn't really mean it. Because what do we have? The next chapter after that, Nebuchadnezzar erects a golden image, and he demands that everybody in his kingdom bows down to this image. And if you don't bow down to it, death or the fiery furnace is what's going to happen. And guess what, though? The three Hebrew boys who had talked to him in chapter 1, they remind him that the God, the God that you said was the God of gods, we're not bowing down to this thing because he's the only one that we can bow down to. They remind him of that. Look in chapter 3 and verse 17. He's threatening them to be thrown into that furnace. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we're not careful to answer thee in this matter. Look what they say in verse 17. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. And all that does is it just brings up a conviction in him. Because he realizes that that God is the one he said was the God of gods and the Lord of lords. And look, in verse 19 it says, Then Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury. And the form of his visage was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Therefore he spake and commanded that they should heat the furnace one seven times more than it was wont to be heated. Send them in the furnace, he says, and we'll see what happens. We'll see what your God can do. 
and they throw him in there and he's looking in and he says, I see those three boys. The flame's not hurting them at all. And there's a fourth man that appears to be like the son of God in the fire with them. And it says he was astonished. He couldn't believe what he's saying. This is the third time. You would think by now, this guy's heart has got to be won over. And it appears it is. Once again, look at the end of chapter 3, verses 28 and 29. Then Nebuchadnezzar spake and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel, delivered his servants that trusted in him, and have changed the king's word, and yielded their bodies, that they might not serve nor worship any god except their own god. He says, therefore I make a decree. I'm convinced now that every people, nation, and language which speak anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces. Their houses shall be made a dunghill. Look what he says, because there is no other God that can deliver after this sort. No other God. You would think, man, that has got to be it. But we come now to chapter 4. And what happens here, his heart is lifted up in pride again, and he has forgotten all about the God of Israel. And yet, despite that, God speaks to him again. Because like I said, that's what this dream is all about. So all I can say is this. We may not like it when God speaks to us, whenever he speaks the word and it brings conviction to us, when it troubles us or whatever. We may not like it, but that is God's grace and goodness. Because he had every right here. He didn't have to speak to Nebuchadnezzar for the fourth time. And Romans 2, 4 says this, Do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? It was this way for my life, and I'm sure a lot of people could say this, that that is the way God operates. So we're seeing here he's four times spoken to Nebuchadnezzar. Four times in his graciousness, trying to soften his heart, bring him to him. God doesn't try to do anything, but that's what he's doing. But that's the way God works. Many times it says, and we can see that if you would turn back to Job. Put something there and turn back to Job 33. Just We can praise God that he does speak to us more than once. Look what we have at beginning in verse 12. Job 33, 12. And this is Elihu speaking to Job. And he says to Job in verse 12, Behold, in this you are not just. I will answer thee. Here's what Nebuchadnezzar needed to learn, and all of us need to learn, that God is greater than man. And why do you strive against him? For he gives not account of any of his matters. Here we see he speaks many times. It says God speaks once, yea, twice, and yet man perceives it not. And here's Nebuchadnezzar, verse 15, in a dream and a vision of the night when deep sleep falls upon men and slumberings upon the bed. Then he opens the ears of men and seals their instruction. Why? Verse 17, that he may withdraw man from his purpose and hide pride from man. And he keeps back his soul from the pit and his life from perishing by the sword. He is chastened also with pain upon his bed and the multitude of his bones with strong pain, so that his life abhors bread and his soul dainty meat. His flesh is consumed away that it cannot be seen, and his bones that were not seen stick out. Yea, his soul, a man's soul, draws near unto the grave and his life to the destroyers. 
But if there be a messenger with him, an interpreter like Daniel, one among a thousand, to show unto man his uprightness, then he, God, is gracious unto him and saith, Deliver him from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom, and his flesh shall be fresher than a child's. He shall return to the days of his youth. He shall pray unto God, and he will be favorable unto him, and he shall see his face with joy, for he will render unto man his righteousness. Verse 27, and he looks upon men, and if any say, I have sinned and perverted that which was right, and it profited me not. What does it say God will do? He will deliver his soul from going into the pit, and his life shall see the light. Lo, these things it says God works oftentimes with man to bring back his soul from the pit, to be enlightened with the light of the living. And can we praise God for that? I really can, because I could say that is the way God worked with me. He didn't just speak to me once, twice, or whatever, and put people on my path that when I was searching for truth, searching for him, that were able to direct me the right way and show me there is a ransom. You know, there is a ransom, and it says God works that way oftentimes with men. He's the one that brings you to the point to where you say, I've sinned, I've not done that which is right. And I see where it's all gotten me. It's like Ecclesiastes. It's like Nebuchadnezzar. I have everything I have, and it's profited me nothing. My soul is still troubled. But that's what God has done. And that's what he does. There's a danger, though. I want to say this. There is a danger, though, that's a real danger and a warning that when he speaks and we don't respond you know what ends up happening? His voice becomes like background noise, and our hearts become hardened to it. That's the way it works, and I've seen that happen. People become what is known as gospel-hardened. So you take a young child, I've seen this happen, 10, 12 years old, and they hear the gospel, they get convicted, there'll be tears. Their heart is tender towards the Lord. And if it stops there or they harden their heart and they keep hearing the gospel, it has less and less and less effect on them. And that's why I've read the statistics back when I was into all my evangelism books. Most people become converted between the ages of, I believe it's eight and early 20s. And the further you go in 10-year increments, the less and less and less do people become converted because their hearts become hardened to the gospel. Now, it's not that God couldn't overcome that. He does, obviously, and has. But that generally is the way things work. And my experience in going out on the streets and witnessing to people is you go and you find teenagers and you talk to them, and that's when they're in their searching stage. That's when their heart hasn't become totally hardened towards the gospel. And they'll listen to you. And God's Spirit can deal with them because that's what happened in Genesis 6. He strive and striving, and men kept hardening their hearts against the preaching of Noah. And finally, God says, my spirit shall not always strive with man. And they've turned their back on my voice one too many times. And that's when the flood came. I grew up near a freeway, and when you first moved there, when I go to bed, that's all I could hear is this freeway noise. That's all I could hear, and it keep me up. But after a while, you know what? You sleep through it. And next thing you know, that's the way you like to sleep. You sleep better next to a freeway. And that's the way it is. You become where it doesn't have any effect on you anymore. And that's what can happen with God's voice. He brings conviction on you. You know he's speaking to you, young people. And you can't keep hard in your heart against that. It's a dangerous thing to do. 
I mean, Proverbs 29, 1, he that being often reproved, it says, and hardens his neck shall suddenly be destroyed and that without remedy. Remedy means that's how you get healed. It's just basically saying your chances are over. But he says often reproved. That's what we're saying. God often reproves people. That's not his heart to judge anyone. He doesn't have to speak any to us, does he? And once would be enough. But he does it many times. And that's what we see here with Nebuchadnezzar. That's the point I wanted to make on that. Go back to Daniel 4. And he calls in his wise men to interpret his dream. That's we won't read, but that's what we have in verses 6 to 7. But they couldn't. And finally, he brings in Daniel. Now, I don't know why he didn't bring Daniel in to begin with. He knows about him, but he didn't. I think part of it was, you know what his dream was? His dream was, it's this tree. And this tree is chopped down. Well, in all the Babylonian literature and paintings, all that stuff they find, the hieroglyphics, whatever it is, the tree represents a king. And I think he knew that was him. He didn't really want to hear it, and they didn't want to tell him. His dream's not that complicated. The details might be. But anyways, he brings Daniel in, and let's read here, beginning in verse 8. But at the last, Daniel came in before me, whose name was Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And before him I told the dream, saying, O Belshazzar, master of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in thee, and no secret troubles thee, tell me the visions of my dream that I have seen, and the interpretation thereof. And thus were the visions of my head and my bed. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and the height thereof was great. And the tree grew and was strong, and the height thereof reached unto heaven, and the sight thereof to the end of all the earth. And the leaves thereof were fair, and the fruit thereof much. And in it was meat for all, food for all. And the beasts of the field had shadow under it, and the fowls of the heaven dwelt in the boughs thereof. And all flesh was fed of it, all the earth, all mankind. And he says, And I saw in the visions of my head upon my bed, and behold, a watcher and a holy one came down from heaven. And he cried aloud and said thus, Hew down the tree and cut off his branches, shake off his leaves and scatter his fruit. Let the beast get away from under it and the fowls from his branches. Nevertheless, leave the stump of his roots in the earth even with a band of iron and brass and the tender grass of the field and let it be wet with the dew of heaven and let his portion be with the beast and the grass of the earth. Let his heart be changed from man's and let a beast heart be given unto him and let seven times pass over him. This matter is by the decree of the watchers and the demand by the word of the holy ones to the intent that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomsoever he will and setteth up over it the basest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now thou, O Belteshazzar, declare the interpretations thereof, for as much as all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known unto me the interpretation. But you're able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in thee. That's what we have going on here. The dream is really not that difficult. Like I said, I think the specifics aren't clear, but it's clear that it's a message of judgment and it's directed right at Nebuchadnezzar, the great tree growing up in the middle of the earth. It's his kingdom reaching up into heaven, covering the ends of the earth, reaching up into heaven. It's like the Tower of Babel. It's echoes of that, isn't it? Man's pride, the king's pride reaching up into heaven 
representing man's pride. Nebuchadnezzar had made a decree back in verse 6. I'm making a decree that you guys are going to tell me what this dream is. That didn't matter. They couldn't. His decrees are meaningless in that sense. He couldn't enforce that. But listen, the decree that God makes here in verse 17 is the one that will stand. And that is that Nebuchadnezzar's tree is going to be cut down and stripped so that Nebuchadnezzar can learn a lesson. That what he does, what he accomplishes, whether it's any man, any government, isn't his to enjoy forever. It isn't his to control because God is going to teach him that he is the one that is solely in control. And God's decrees are the ones that will last. Now listen, that would have been a word of comfort to Daniel's readers. You know why? They're all being oppressed by Nebuchadnezzar. The Jews are over in that land. He's oppressed them. He's ruined their city. He seems to be an oppressive ruler that no one can get out from under his thumb. In the future, we may need to remember that. That whatever happens, we're not under the control of whoever has their thumb on top of us, are we? Who's the one that's in control? The Lord is. Because Nebuchadnezzar to these people, to the Jews, and all these nations he's conquered, he seems to be an all-powerful human and an all-powerful ruler. And God's people under him seem to be helpless, don't they? In the natural, they were. And Nebuchadnezzar thought they were helpless under him. But God is saying here through Daniel, no, you are not in control. I am. You think about it. Nebuchadnezzar couldn't interpret his own dreams. He thinks he's Mr. Big and Bad. Couldn't interpret his own dreams. Only God could do that. Nebuchadnezzar thinks he can take these three Jewish boys and just toss them into the fire and burn them up like a marshmallow on a Saturday night. And God says, no, you can't. I'm the one that's in control of my people. You don't have this absolute power you have, and that's what he's telling them here again. This kingdom that you think you've grown and made, this tree that you think you are, I can cut you down overnight. And he does. And that's the God we serve. Nebuchadnezzar, you do not roll in the kingdom of men because God says, I do. And I'm going to bring you down, like it says in verse 17, so that every living man and woman can know something. Look what it says again, verse 17. This matter is by the decree of the watchers, the demand by the word of the holy ones to the intent. Here's why I've decreed this, God says. This is why this is going to happen. That the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomsoever he will. And he sets up over it the basest of men. God's sovereignty over this world is complete. He not only gives the kingdoms to whomsoever he will, but he sets the rulers in place. It says the basis of men. Now, even I in the past have thought that means, you know, he'll set up scumbags, moral scumbags. Well, he does do that. We know that that's happened. But that's not necessarily what he's saying. He's saying basically he can take a nobody that the world wouldn't place and he'll make it to where he's the one ruling vast nations. We've had many presidents that were in essence nobodies. And you follow, it's like, how in the world did this guy end up becoming president? Harry Truman, who is the only living ruler to drop an atom bomb on anybody, had that kind of power. He was a failure, a business failure. And politics was like the only thing he could succeed at. He's like, well, I'll just stay with this. The next thing you know, through a chain of events, if you ever read his bar, it's crazy how this guy became president of the United States. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, but that's what God does. 
or Ulysses S. Grant. He was another one. I mean, all he could do was ride a horse. He was a great at riding the horses, and I'm not saying he wasn't a good general. He's another guy. He, he, all his little business ventures and all that, he failed at all of them. But through circumstances, God brings this nobody and brings him up to president of the United States or whatever. When Daniel understands what this dream is all about, Nebuchadnezzar says it to him. And when Daniel understands it, we'll see in verse 19, he's speechless for an hour. <laughs> when he realizes what this is all about, because God has shown him speechless for an hour and troubled. Look at verse 19. And then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was astonished for one hour, and his thoughts troubled him. And the king spake and said to Belteshazzar, Let not the dream or the interpretation thereof trouble thee. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, the dream be to them that hate thee, and the interpretation thereof to thine enemies. So he must have really liked, I think he did, I think he liked and respected Nebuchadnezzar. He worked for him. And he doesn't like what he sees is going to happen. He's like, I hope this doesn't happen to you, but i got to tell you, this is what was said. Nebuchadnezzar's like, tell me what was said. I'm going to tell you. So look here in verses 20. We'll read on. Here's what he said. He says, The tree that you saw, O king, which grew and was strong, whose height reached unto the heaven and the sight thereof to all the earth, whose leaves were fair and the fruit thereof much, and it was meat for all, food for all, under which the beasts of the fields dwelt, and upon whose branches the fowls of the heaven had their habitation. It is you, O king. It's you. You are grown and become strong, for thy greatness is grown and reached unto the heavens, and thy dominion to the end of the earth. And whereas the king saw a watcher and a holy one coming down from heaven and saying, Hew the tree down and destroy it, yet leave the stump of the roots thereof in the earth, even with a band of iron and brass in the tender grass of the field, and let it be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beast of the field, till seven times pass over him. And this is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which is come upon my Lord the King. You can't get away from it. That they shall drive thee from men. Thy dwelling shall be with the beast of the field. They shall make you to eat grass as oxen. They shall wet thee with the dew of heaven. And seven times shall pass over thee till you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men. And he gives it to whomsoever he will. And whereas they commanded to leave the stump of the tree roots, thy kingdom shall be sure unto thee. After that, thou shalt have known that the heavens do rule. Wherefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable unto thee, and break off thy sins by righteousness, and thy iniquities by showing mercy to the poor, if it may be a lengthening of thy tranquility." So God has got to do what? He is going to break Nebuchadnezzar's pride. And I'll tell you, why is that? He said, his kingdom has gone to your head. And I'm going to bring you down, God says, as low as a man could be brought. You're going to live like an animal, literally. You're going to exist like an animal until you know something. Until you know that you don't rule a thing except by my permission, that it is heaven that rules. Says it twice in verses 26 and 27. You're going to have to know something. Going to break his pride. Why is that? Because pride, whether we realize it or not, it is the deadliest of sins. The deadliest of sins. It's the first mentioned in the list of things that God says he hates in Proverbs chapter 6. 
These six things does the Lord hate. Yea, seven are an abomination unto him. The first thing he says is a proud look and a lying tongue and so on. What is pride? What is pride saying? Pride is saying that I am the center of the universe and everything revolves around me. And pride says I can do what I want to do. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar thought. And here's the thing. It's not just his problem. It's our problem. The Nebuchadnezzar syndrome is the I will syndrome. It is the I will syndrome. Says this is Satan, I will ascend. This is what the devil said. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. And the I wills of pride are what enable people to hate, to steal, to gossip, and to commit adultery. So you think about it. David who was said to be, now he's a saint, he's got a regenerate heart, said to be a man after God's own heart. But when he got lifted up in pride because of all his success, all his military success, all the money he had, God had just said, I'm going to extend your kingdom forever. Got lifted up with pride. He's like Nebuchadnezzar was sitting back in ease, flipping his nickels up in the air, counting his money. David should have been out fighting, and instead he's walking around at ease on his rooftop Checking things out, and he checks the wrong thing out, doesn't he? He believed he was the center of the universe at that point, and he could do and take what he wanted because that is what he did. Who is that woman? Oh, well, that's Uriah's wife. Oh, well, what does he think he's doing then? He has a right to that, David? And the Lord told David when he sent Nathan, he says, you've despised me by what you've done. And that's what pride will do. And God had to do what? He had to greatly humble David through his chastisement, didn't he? And it's the same for us. We're just not kings and queens. We just operate on a smaller scale. We all have to have our pride dealt with, don't we? On a whole lot of ways. And we need to be warned about pride. It's the root of all sin. Because it's always a temptation to swell up when someone praises what a great job you've done or you're doing no matter what it is you're doing, or your financial achievements. Just look at how great your business is doing, all the success you're having, and you're just a hard worker. All that hard work, and your children are just such a testimony, and you're thinking to yourself, they're a chip off the old block. And you ought to be like, let's hope not. Or, well, how great your faith is. Oh, you've got great faith. I just really admire your testimonies. On and on it could go. It's not socially cool to outwardly boast, but inside the chest is swelling a little bit. I mean, maybe if we watch real close, a few buttons might be getting ready to pop. I don't know. That's the way it is. But the Bible says what? What do we have to boast from? This is what Nebuchadnezzar had to learn in his pride, and this is what we all need to learn, is that any success we have comes from God only. You're a healthy person. Where does that come from? You're mentally tough. You have mental well-being and peace, your finances, even your next breath. All of those are what? They're gifts that come from God. And only pride is going to take credit for something that God gives. 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says, For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? I mean, name anything you have that wasn't given to you, ultimately by God. What do you have that you did not receive? And, he, and Paul writes, and if you did receive it, 
Why do you boast as though you did not? And that's what Nebuchadnezzar's doing. He's acting like he's somehow all this stuff he has. And God said, I'm going to have to deal with that. And he has to deal with us, doesn't he? So you put something there, turn back to Deuteronomy 8. Deuteronomy 8. This is what God had to tell Israel. Deuteronomy 8, beginning in verse 10. Deuteronomy 8.10, it says this, And when you have eaten and are full, God tells them as they enter into the promised land, then thou shalt bless the Lord thy God for the good land which, what? He has given thee. And beware, it's a warning, that thou forget not the Lord thy God in not keeping his commandments and his judgments and his statutes which I command thee this day, lest when you have eaten and are full and has built goodly houses and dwelt therein, and when thy herds and thy flocks multiply, thy silver and thy gold is multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, beware, then thine heart be lifted up, full of pride, and you forget the Lord thy God, which brought you forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, because you didn't have a thing then, Israel, who led thee through the great and terrible wilderness, wherein were fiery serpents and scorpions and drought, where there was no water, who brought thee forth water out of the rock of Flint, who fed thee in the wilderness with manna, which thy fathers knew not, that he might humble you and that he might prove you. Why does God do that to us? to do thee good at thy latter end. That's why we go through trials, to humble us and to prove us and that he can do us good at the end. But he says, And thou say in thy heart, verse 17, that my power and the might of mine hand has gotten me this wealth. But you shall remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that gives you power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant, which he swore unto thy fathers, as it is this day. That's who gives us the power to get things. That's what the Bible clearly teaches. And then there's also, we know this, there's that deadly sin of religious pride. You have the Pharisee and the publican. They both go into the temple and pray. And what does the pride of the Pharisee say? God, I thank you that I am not as other men are. I'm just not that way. I'm not an extortioner, unjust, and adulterous, or I'm not even like this publican here who rips people off. No, I'm not like that at all. I fast. This is what I do. I fast twice in the week, give tithes of all that I possess. And was God impressed with that? Not at all. Jesus, is, he is God. He's hearing this. God, pray. Basically, nobody's hearing that prayer. God didn't hear it. And he points, there's a publican that says, standing afar off, who would not even lift up his eyes into heaven, but smote upon his breast. This guy's like, I don't have anything to offer, Lord. I'm just here. The only thing I need is your mercy. Be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus is watching both of them. He's saying, don't be like that Pharisee because he didn't get a thing. This guy, though, because of his humble attitude, he went home justified, made right before God. That's what he said. So God in his grace, he'll warn us. He'll say, repent of pride or pay the consequences. But it takes courage to speak those words sometimes, doesn't it? You know, somebody's going to be offended when they're wrong and you confront them with it and you know that they're probably going to blow up. But if you're back in Daniel 4, that's exactly what Daniel did on that last verse we read, verse 27. He says to the king, let my counsel, he gives him some counsel, let it be acceptable unto you. Listen, this is what you need to do, Mr. King, break off thy sins. 
by righteousness and thine iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. I mean, that took a lot of boldness, didn't it? Because Nebuchadnezzar was a hothead. And for all he knew, that was the last thing Daniel would have said. But he was faithful, wasn't he? Faithful with what God had given him to do. But that's the way it works. Because without that, if you don't have that word to somebody, maybe that's what they need to be able to repent. So Jonah goes into Nineveh, prophesied in 40 days it's going to be destroyed. Now, there are proud, wicked people that Assyrians were who he's prophesying to. But when the word of the Lord was spoken, and that took some guts, Jonah didn't want to go there and do it, did he? But it says, the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest of them even to the least of them, everyone from the king to the dog catcher. And they said, we are all going to fast. Nobody's going to taste any food. Nobody's going to drink a drop of water, not even the animals. Because we believe what he has said. We believe this God of Jonah that swallowed him up by a fish and had him spewed out on the ground. We know about this God. I think what he said is true is what they're saying. We believe it. And we're just going to trust that he'll have mercy on us and not do what he's proclaimed. And with every word of judgment and prophecy, there is always that element of if you repent, God will relent. From Jeremiah right on down, that was his word to Jerusalem, even though they didn't take it seriously. Did Nebuchadnezzar heed this warning from Daniel? God gave him a year to repent. God gave him space. Look what it says in verse 28. It says, And all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he walked in the palace of the kingdom of Babylon, and the king spake and said, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power? Whoops, wasn't a good thing to say. And for the honor of my majesty, Verse 31, while the word was in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven saying, O king Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it is spoken. God speaking directly to him now. Thy kingdom is departed from thee, and they shall drive thee from men. Thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make you to eat grass as oxen, and seven times shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomsoever he will. And that same hour was the thing fulfilled upon Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men and did eat grass as oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hairs were grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird claws. Nebuchadnezzar the Great, the great king, became a poster child for a Chick-fil-A ad. You know, they always have the eat more chicken stuff. Now have a cow that... Kind of went over everybody's head. Must be time for bed. That's all right. So he probably thought after 12 months and a year and nothing had happened that Daniel must have been wrong. And the mistake he made was he thought delay meant denial, that it wasn't going to happen. But he should have remembered something that when he had his dream, there were what? Watchers. Verse 17 tells us that. And we need to remember that someone is always watching us. Amen? And just because you don't have the proverbial bolt of lightning hit you because you just went out drinking, you just went out smoking dope, you just went out sleeping around with somebody, you just went out doing whatever it is you know, you're just looking at uh, internet pornography. Well, I've been doing this for a while and things seem to be going pretty good. 
Ecclesiastes 8 says, Because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Though a sinner do evil a hundred times, and his days be prolonged, yet surely I know that it shall be well with them that fear God, which fear before Him. But it shall not be well with the wicked, neither shall he prolong his days, which are as a shadow because he fears not before God. But, I don't want to end there. That's not the end of the story, is it? Because God was gracious to Nebuchadnezzar, wasn't he? Granted him repentance. Look in verses 34 to 36. And at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes unto heaven, and mine understanding returned unto me. And I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored Him that lives forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom is from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And He does according to His will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay His hand or say unto Him, What are you doing? At the same time, my reason returned unto me, and for the glory of my kingdom, mine honor and brightness returned unto me. My counselors and my lords sought unto me, and I was established in my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added unto me. God brought him back to his senses, didn't he? Twice it says that, that his senses were restored. He was out of his mind. He was given an animal's mind. But twice he said God had mercy on him and his senses were restored. Not only did he bring him back to his senses, he restored him to his kingdom. All his counselors, you would think, man, after seven years, like we got somebody else. You're old news. No, no. They sought him out, put him back on his kingdom. And God actually even made it better than it was before all this happened. That's what it says at the end of verse 36. Excellent majesty was added unto me. Other translations say it this way. I became even greater than before. Nebuchadnezzar, his latter end was better than his former after he submitted to God's humbling process. And it's the same picture that we have in the New Testament in Luke 15 of the prodigal son. In pride, he took all of what was his and lived how he wanted, ended up living like what? An animal feeding with the swine. And when he hit rock bottom like Nebuchadnezzar, what does it say in Luke? It says he came to himself. He came to his senses, lifted up his eyes to heaven in repentance and humility. Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight and am no more worthy to be called thy son. And that is true humility. And what happened? Just like with Nebuchadnezzar, the father restored the prodigal. That's the promise you have if you are in that far country tonight. Come to your senses. Come back. He won't turn you away. That's the promise. Restored him to his family and gave him the best that he had. Get the best robe. Get the best of everything because I'm not treating my son. He's not second class. He's not a slave. I'm not going to let you be my slave. You're my son. I'm thrilled you're back. That's the way God is. Or what about the Gadarene demoniac? In Mark chapter 5, you read Luke, he lived like an animal too. It says he wore no clothes. He didn't live in a home. He didn't have a restaurantic bed either. But he lived in tombs, it says, in caves like an animal. And Jesus came. Did Jesus leave him in that condition? 
Is that the way the Lord intended man made in his image to live like an animal? Tormented by the devil, mentally oppressed? It says of him, and I have literally seen this with my own eyes, crying out day and night. I've heard demonic screams. I've seen people that cut their arms because they have the devil in them. That's not God. God didn't make us to be that way. And that's what Jesus is all about, to restore that. Psalm 8 tells us how God intended man to live. Not as a God independent of him, but as a co-ruler under him on the earth. What is man, Psalm 8 says, that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him, for you have made him a little lower than the angels. Listen to what it says. Here's how God made us. You have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands, and you have put all things under his feet. God created man in his image with honor, glory, and dignity. The cross of the Lord Jesus Christ is intended to restore that. Because sickness and infirmities, deformities, whatever, an illness, that is not how God created us to be. It's the work of the enemy. And there is no glory and honor given to God in bearing sickness, oppression by spirits, poverty or lack, or just general woes. Now, we can have trials, can't we? We understand that, but it does still say that trials are for a season, not a lifetime. So let's press in and truly expect that it is, as it says in Luke, our Father's good pleasure to give us the kingdom. Read Revelation 20 and 21. You don't see any sickness, tears. The curse is not there. It's gone. That's what he says it's his good pleasure to give us. We read this, Daniel 4, if a heathen king like Nebuchadnezzar can experience the deliverance and blessing of God, then surely we can, can't we? His spirit-filled children, sons and daughters. And what does it say in 1 John? For this purpose was the Son of God manifested. What purpose? What is the purpose? That he might destroy the works of the devil. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth, who went about doing good, healing all who were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. And if we need to press in to find out how we can have God's presence, power manifested through his gifts, which is what a church is all about, that's what we need to do. That's what it's all about. We just need to meet the conditions, don't we? And the conditions are not impossible. They may seem, but they are not. Who's the main character in this story? You'd think, well, Nebuchadnezzar's named quite a bit, and Daniel seems to be, but it's not. Who is the main character? It's God is the main character. Nebuchadnezzar had to learn about the greatness and majesty of the God of Israel and his kingdom, and that his earthly kingdom, as great as it was, was nothing but a tree ready to be chopped down. Insignificant, insignificant in comparison. And so if you would, go back to verses 2 and 3. This is God's kingdom. This is what he had to learn. And Nebuchadnezzar announces this to all the world, that I thought it was good, chapter 4, verse 2, I thought it was good to show the signs and wonders that the high God has wrought toward me, in me. How great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. And here's what he says, his kingdom, not mine, his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion 
is from generation to generation. And go back at the end and look in verses 34 and 35 again. We'll read that one more time. And at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes unto heaven. My understanding returned unto me, and I blessed the Most High. I praised and honored him that lives forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom is from generation to generation, and all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he, God, does according to his will in the army of heaven, and not only there, but among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? The great king, that one of the top five kings in all of history, gave this testimony to the world, all the peoples of the world. Look in verse 37, this will end reading this. And now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heavens, all whose works are truth and his ways judgment. And those that walk in pride, he is able to abase. Amen. It's the God we serve. Amen. Let's pray. And Father, we thank you, Lord, for the word that you've given us, that you say all of these things in the Old Testament were written for our learning and our admonition. And we realize, Lord, that you will abase and humble those that are walking in pride. That's what you do, Lord, and, and that we should learn to just humbly walk before you under your mighty hand. Amen. And also, Lord, that we don't have to fear a wicked or oppressive ruler because you put them in place and they are controlled by you. They are not in their own power, though it may seem that way at times. And that you control all events and that none can stay your hand, God, and that you are one to be feared. And I just ask that your fear will be in every person in this room that will respect fear, be in awe of who you are. Amen. And I thank you for doing that in Jesus' name. Amen.